For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems things like hard starts rough performance and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup sea foam can help your engine run better and last longer simply pour a can in your gas tank hunters and anglers rely on sea foam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to SteelDealers.com. Now... Here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. Florida's Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission voted unanimously last week to reopen fishing for the Goliath grouper, as in catch and keep fishing for the Goliath grouper. If anybody's familiar with the Goliath, you know that it is a fish that you cannot take out of the water, let alone put on the dinner table. Mature Goliath groupers are about as large as a refrigerator, and they aren't afraid of anything smaller than a shark. They also tend to gather in high numbers at predictable locations. As you can imagine, those traits made them very easy and desirable targets for fishermen. Without any regulation on harvest, the population along the Florida coast declined in the 1950s, and the species was nearly wiped out by the time fishing was closed in 1990. Now, the question is, has the Goliath grouper population recovered enough to warrant a new fishing season? The Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission says yes. The rule they just approved allows for a limited, highly regulated harvest of up to 200 Goliath per year with harvest opportunities divvied out lottery style, just like your special draw big game tags. Only juvenile goliaths between 20 and 36 inches will be eligible for harvest, and all state waters will be open except for a strip of coastline along the southeastern tip of the state. The season would run from March through May, which does not overlap with the fish's spawning season. In addition, under the proposed rule, hook and line is the only allowable gear, meaning no netting or spearfishing or dynamiting. Now, you might be thinking, if the population has rebounded, where's the controversy? 
Anglers complain that groupers often steal their catch, and some argue that the fish are actually overpopulated and harming the ecosystem, according to surveys done by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission. There will always be folks who oppose hunting and fishing no matter how stable the population is, but the goliath is a tricky fish to count. Scientists still aren't sure how long goliaths can live. There are no long-term data sets on landings, and there's a lack of information about populations outside the southeastern U.S. Most scientists agree that the goliath is still regrouping. Get it? It's a grouper. But no one is quite sure how much the population has recovered. Marine biologist Chris Koenig described the population as, quote, teetering on the edge in an interview with NPR, along with his wife, Florida State University's Felicia Coleman. She believes that the adult population is actually declining. The Goliath's recovery depends on the size of the reproductive population. And if that population isn't growing, the species isn't ready to be harvested. The Florida Fish Wildlife Commission's proposed rule attempts to circumvent the critique by only allowing harvest of juvenile goliaths, which is the age class recovering most quickly. These fish typically weigh between 5 and 32 pounds and are found in nearshore environments prior to moving offshore and maturing into adults. This 20 to 36 inch size limit both protects the smallest fish, which are most susceptible to natural mortality, as well as reproductive adults which are most crucial to a stable population. I don't know what the right answer is, but I do know this. The Goliath grouper is awesome and worth protecting. The largest of the Atlantic groupers, Goliaths can reach up to 800 pounds and grow to over 8 feet in length. The Florida record is a 680-pound grouper caught off Fernandina Beach in 1961. For some context, adult male grizzly bears usually weigh between 300 and 700 pounds. When they're not feeding or spawning, adults are relatively sedentary, even when approached by humans. There are tons of images online of divers swimming right up to a huge grouper, touching it, even petting them, putting their fingers in their mouths, which, you know, frankly, I don't recommend. The Goliath's bravery is understandable. When they're smaller, they're eaten by everything. When they've reached full size, their only worries are humans and extra large, extra motivated sharks. If you live in Florida, Don't think you can go out tomorrow and bag yourself a Goliath. The Florida Fish Wildlife Commission says the new groupers season won't begin until 2023, and they may change some regulations at their next meeting in March before finalizing the rule. According to local Florida media, the commission may consider increasing the minimum harvest size and reducing the license fee. Right now, while Florida residents can enter the lottery for only $10, a permit costs $500 which is almost a guided day of fishing in Florida, or roughly at the top of the size limit, $14 a pound. This week, we've got wolves, avian malaria, and the endangered species list. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week has been spent in North Dakota. I joined Sean Weaver of the Meat Eater Crew and Matt Chenard of Delta Waterfowl. Matt is a biologist who, amongst many other things, showed us how to build and place hen houses, which benefit mallard duck populations, which happens to be one of my favorite flying pieces of meat. A hen house, as they build them, is a 7-foot piece of welded steel mesh rolled with a 34-inch inside diameter. Flax straws placed inside the tube for bedding, like imagine a scar with tobacco falling out both ends. 
This is placed on a single pole stand above open water, about six to 10 feet from the near shoreline and anywhere from three to five feet above the high water line. It may take a season or two, but a hen mallard will eventually investigate the structure and nest in it. Hen houses like this cost about $50 in material and keep the nest safe from egg-eating predators like badgers, skunks, mink, and yes, even your dog or house cat. In some test areas, Delta has seen an increase in fecundity, which is a great word for the ability to produce offspring. Their studies show an increase by over 60% in some marshes. After that, of course, we tried to kill some ducks for the table, which we did. We got a few ducks, some speckle-belly geese, and some of the largest Canada geese I've ever seen. We weighed the lightest one at over 14 pounds. I was able to break my curse in regards to never having killed a speckle-belly goose, which is a nasty curse as those geese are not only incredible acrobats, super fun to watch, but very tasty. And we were invited to join in on a sandhill crane shoot, which is something I have always wanted to do. The morning was hammering rain, 40 degrees, winds gusting from 15 to 30 miles per hour, and the cranes did not come, which is honestly exactly what I was expecting. However, after you get up at 3.30 in the morning, drive an hour and unload a Can-Am and shuttle gear and guys and guns across mud for a few hours, you don't just shrug your shoulders and go home. You wait it out and try to watch the bird activity through the horizontal rain. And it's a good thing we did. Once the crane started flying, we were in the middle of them, which is an amazing experience. These birds have wingspans between five and six and a half feet. Additionally, when I was growing up in Montana, cranes were not all that common. Their numbers have rebounded from habitat loss and unregulated hunting incredibly well just in my lifetime. This is a bird that is in the fossil record dating back at least 2.5 million years, but were largely extirpated east of the Mississippi and dwindled to possibly as few as a thousand individuals west of the Mississippi. Currently, lesser sandhill cranes are estimated at over 400,000 individuals and greater sandhill cranes at 100,000. Remember, that uh, pesky thing I was talking about, the Recovering America's Grasslands Act. Mentioned that a few weeks ago. Well, as I have told you before, grasslands are where a lot of our wetland-oriented birds do their nesting. Gadwall, widgeon, mallard, teal. Remember the Clean Water Act? Those intermittent wetland and prairie potholes? Well, a lot of where we had success in North Dakota was dry until the rains came. Still not what people think of when we think wetlands. But it's that cycle of drying out and then filling up that keep the birds fed. And consequently, if you're so inclined, yourself. Geese, cranes, duck, taste good. And I know this is way too brief of a mention. The snort report. This ear is not going to heal up with hunting. That is very apparent to me. But the dog is doing very well. She did go into heat this week which is like dog owner talk for a lady being receptive, I suppose. She is largely the same, but uh, her attention span is a little different, I would say. Anyway, she retrieved a bunch of birds. I wouldn't say her discipline was awesome. We had a lot of fun in North Dakota. Moving on. It's been busy at the wolf desk. Here's a quote for you. Instead of calling the authorities, I just took the wolf. 
These are the words of 56-year-old Lane Bunner of Casper, Wyoming, speaking of the Jackson Hole News and Guide after being sentenced this month for poaching a male gray wolf back in 2017. Call me gullible, but Bunner comes across as a pretty candid individual, and I believe him when he says he did not wake up seven days prior to the legal hunting season and poach a wolf. Apparently, as Bunner was preparing for an elk hunt, the wolf in question appeared and went after his Jack Russell Terrier, he dispatched the wolf to save his dog. From there, however, Bunner's decision-making got uh, harder to sympathize with. Instead of calling the warden, he cut the GPS tracking collar off the wolf's neck, tossed it aside, loaded the carcass into his truck, drove home, skinned the animal, then discarded the rest of the body, except for the skull. Bunner waited two weeks until wolf season was well underway, then reported a legal harvest. He brought the pelt and skull into fish and game, per Wyoming regulation, and a warden and a biologist registered the kill and took a DNA sample. In 2020, Wyoming game and fish biologist Ken Mills had the idea that uh, the agency had a complete DNA record on all wolves reported during hunting season and all the wolves that had been collared and then gone missing with a suspicion of being poached. So why not run a comparison between the two sets? Coincidentally, Mills was the person who had also found the tracking collar that Bunner had discarded. Wouldn't you know it, the DNA of Bunner's wolf matched that of 1080M, a male born in 2016 who had been collared and sampled in January of 17. This wolf was part of the Phantom Springs pack living in Wyoming's Grand Teton National Park. Bunner ended up having to pay just over $3,000 in fines and restitution and having his hunting privileges revoked for four years. Bunner's expression of regret uh, also seemed genuine to me. Here that is. Hunting is my heart and soul, and it's why I live in this state. I'll be an old man and crippled up before I'm ever able to do that again. Well, if it's your heart and soul, you gotta kind of do things by the book. Anyway... I talk about this all the time, but the thing to do, right, is call the game warden, explain what happened, and it's not going to go nearly as bad as it will if the game warden calls you. But here's a crazily similar case that has a different outcome. In the state of Idaho, a non-resident hunter killed a wolf without a wolf tag. Sometime later, that out-of-state hunter sent that wolf to a taxidermist with a valid wolf tag. Two years after the fact, This Utahn, Brian J. Call, was caught. His penalty was 100 hours of community service, a $500 fine, and one year of probation with no loss of hunting privileges. Oddly similar cases, but for the outcomes. And what's a but for, you ask? For pooping, silly. That's a stolen joke from the original South Park movie. Satire genius, but really not the point here. Okay. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. 
Lots of hunters and anglers know that sea foam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, sea foam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Sea foam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of sea foam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Here are some headlines. Three Yellowstone wolves killed during first week of Montana's hunting season. If they're not in Yellowstone, are they Yellowstone wolves? Native American tribes sue Wisconsin to stop planned gray wolf hunt. Federal officials to review protections for wolves in the West. But You know, to be honest, I'm tired of wolves as political football, and I'm annoyed that another very important wolf story gets no play in the national press because there's no political theater around it. According to a new study in the journal Biological Conservation, the population of red wolves in the U.S. is down to just seven individuals in one wild population in northeast North Carolina. That's right. Not 17, not 70, but seven. Where are the New Jersey cat ladies raising hell about this? Red wolves, or Canis rufus, are distinct from Canis lupus, or gray wolves. Their bodies are smaller, but their legs and ears are longer proportionately for their size. As implied by their name, they are tawnier than gray wolves, but they aren't red the way you think of a red as like a fox is red. At their peak, the range of red wolves extended all across the southern U.S., out to central Texas, to the west, and up to Illinois to the north. Then they had a tough couple hundred years with government-funded predator elimination programs, rampant habitat loss across their range, and interbreeding with coyotes in places where they had few other reproductive options. Things got so bad that in 1980, U.S. Fish and Wildlife captured the last 17 known red wolves, and the species was declared extinct in the wild. But then, through serious federal, state, and nonprofit efforts, those 17 wolves were kept alive and successfully bred. 
1987, eight wolves born in captivity were released into the wild in the Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge, which is out on the Albemarle Pomlico Peninsula in eastern North Carolina. Believe me, if I butchered the name, the email's askcal at themeteor.com. Just write in. I expect you. This kind of reintroduction program is responsible for many of the species we could hardly imagine life without today, such as the American bison, the bighorn sheep in Oregon, the bald eagle, the wild turkey in a lot of places, elk back east in Tennessee and North Carolina, as well as our friend the blackfoot ferret, which we told you about a long time ago. But the red wolf reintroduction was the first ever attempted for a large predator, and no one knew how it was going to go. By late 2006, their numbers were up to 130 individuals from that original 17, which is pretty neat, but the increase in population from a relatively unknown at that point predator created friction with landowners in the area, as the wolves were thought to be keeping deer numbers low. After several lawsuits, U.S. Fish and Wildlife halted reintroduction, as well as coyote sterilization programs that were credited with protecting the red wolf's gene pool. Now. After an underreported rash of red wolf poaching, we are left with only seven individuals in the wild. You know, to some degree, I get it. Red wolves don't look as impressive as gray wolves. Their precise definition is a little hard to understand. At their peak, they probably knocked back deer numbers. They sort of blend in with coyotes. Game of Thrones didn't build the whole plots around their mid-sized red wolf. No tourists are getting t-shirts with the screen print of a red wolf howling at the moon. But if I could just borrow one-tenth of the outrage that surrounds the gray wolf, which is doing just fine, we could get people invested in making sure the red wolf doesn't join the other 22 species that U.S. Fish and Wildlife just declared extinct. It is not that I have any special love for the animal itself. It's just that I know we, as the dominant, noxious species on the planet with the oversized thumbs and heavy brains, have the ability to do something about a species dying off forever, under our watch. So, shouldn't we? Or, do you think it's a giant waste of time and money and it just creates more conflict? We should save our powder for the next big fight. Something more important. People don't know the Red Wolf. Again, there's no t-shirt. Should our efforts go elsewhere? It's a good and valid question. But do you at home or in the car listening want to be the person to answer that question? So maybe one day a future Paul Harvey type could say, on this day in history, I don't want that to be my legacy. Next up, the Biodiversity Desk. Last month, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service proposed delisting 23 endangered species. These species should be delisted, the service says, because they've gone extinct. In a press release, the agency blames a variety of human-related factors for the decline, including climate change, habitat loss, overuse, and the introduction of invasive species and disease. The plants and animals tagged for extinct status include 11 birds, 8 freshwater mussels, 2 fish, a bat, and a plant. The birds include the ivory-billed woodpecker, Bachman's warbler, and the po'auli of Hawaii. Remember, that's A-S-K-C-A-L at TheMeteor.com. Each of these 23 species represents a permanent loss to our nation's natural heritage and a global biodiversity. Bridget Fahey of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service told the New York Times, Quote, it's a sobering reminder that extinction is a consequence of human-caused environmental change. This is sobering news, but here's a little context. 
all of these species except one mussel variety were listed as endangered in the 60s, 70s, or 80s. Most have not had a confirmed sighting in the last 40 years, and some haven't been seen since the 1800s. In other words, these aren't species that have seen a rapid decline due to environmental harms of recent decades. Like, you probably didn't do this, but, you know, maybe somebody in your family did. As the Fish and Wildlife Service says, most of these species were simply added to the Endangered Species Act too late. Most were either extinct, functionally extinct, or in steep decline at the time of listing. Some folks might use that as the uh, Endangered Species Act doesn't work argument, but not so fast. Fish and Wildlife reports that the ESA has been successful at preventing the extinction of more than 99% of species listed. In total, 54 species have been delisted from the ESA due to recovery, and another 56 have been downlisted from endangered to threatened. Hunters have benefited from and often aided this conservation work. The American alligator was listed as endangered in 1967, but the species recovered in the 1980s, and today hunters enjoy harvesting the reptile throughout the South. Gray wolves are among the most famously recovered endangered animals, and today several states offer limited wolf hunts. Don't you know? This is not to say that we should have been saving species just so we can hunt them, but if you're skeptical of the ESA, keep in mind that it doesn't only benefit the animal rights crowd. This latest extinction news should also remind us that our work is far from over. Our nation's animal and plant species are threatened by a wide array of dangers, including one you may not be familiar with, avian malaria. If you look again at that list of extinct species, you'll notice that 8 of the 11 birds hail from Hawaii. There's a reason for that. Over the last 120 years or so, native Hawaiian birds have been slammed by malaria and the danger is far from over. If anything, it's getting worse. According to my friend and USGS ecologist Bob Reed, mosquitoes arrived with the Europeans as early as 1826, and the parasite that causes malaria arrived sometime after 1900. Soon after that, these birds just started tanking, Bob told me. Native Hawaiian birds haven't evolved any resistance to avian malaria, and the models predict that we'll lose 12 additional species by the year 2100 if we can't solve this problem. For some species, climate change has shortened the timeline even further. Mosquitoes can't survive cold temperatures, as you may know, so many birds move higher in elevation to colder temps. But as temperatures warm, mosquitoes also move higher. Some of the Hawaiian islands feature mountains tall enough to give birds a place to escape, but some are so low that the mosquitoes will soon reach the highest point on the island. Reed warned that three bird species may be functionally extinct within the next two years. One of those species only has a maximum of three years. One has five, one has ten. For context, there were about 56 species of land birds in Hawaii prior to the arrival of the Polynesians. 20 of which were already lost by the time the Europeans arrived. Today, there are only 21 forest bird species on the Hawaiian Islands. In other words, we're looking at the extinction of more than 50% of Hawaii's remaining forest birds in the next 80 years. You're probably wondering what we're doing about this potential catastrophe. Good question. Traditional insecticides won't work in this situation. It would kill a lot of the insects birds need to eat. 
One possible solution would be to insert bacteria into male mosquitoes. This would cause all eggs fertilized by these males to be infertile, which would decrease the overall population. Unfortunately, this would only be a stopgap measure. Other scientists are working on identifying genes in birds that have developed resistance to malaria. Theoretically, we could insert these genes into other populations and give them some resistance. Another solution would be to study the microbiomes of these birds to develop a malaria-resistant probiotic therapy. This therapy could be administered in bird feeders and would allow species to continue to exist on lower elevation islands. Good old-fashioned translocation has been suggested as well. Each of these solutions, if you can call them that, take time. But time is exactly what we don't have. This is an immediate need, Dr. Bob says. We need to get everything moving now in order to have a chance at saving these first three species. It's a big deal. Scientists like Reed are working as fast as they can, but they're not just fighting mosquitoes. Rats and cats are a big threat to ground-nesting birds, and the habitats of some species have been wiped out by volcanoes and hurricanes. Right now, all we can do is support the folks working to crack the malaria code and hope that these birds survive to the long end of their predicted extinction timeline. For more information on the ESA or avian malaria, visit the USGS. That's all I've got for you this week. Thanks for listening. Remember, it's hunting season. If you need a trusty, dependable, hard-working, clean, quiet, battery-operated chainsaw or a set of hedge trimmers like we were using to knock down some uh, brush to coat our blinds, check out steeldealers.com and find a local knowledgeable steel dealer near you And most importantly, write in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's askcal at themeteor.com. And let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel, gum, and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.